I want to tell you a, a story that's one of my um, favourite favourite memories growing up as a kid, um, as a ten as a ten year old boy. Um, I've always been mad on sports, and my two main sports have been uh, football and rugby. And I want to tell you a story about the England rugby team. Uh, on the twenty second of November two thousand and three, uh, a group of bruised, bloodied, quite ugly uh, Englishmen went to Australia uh, in the city of Sydney and won the Rugby World Cup. In a a crowd of 82,000 loud and rowdy Australians, they stole the World Cup from under their noses with a 120th minute drop goal. And the hero of this hour, the hero of one of the greatest sporting triumphs in the history of England, was a man named Johnny Wilkinson. Johnny Wilkinson, who for four years before 2003 had been the darling of English rugby. He was the the good-looking one that never really got his hands dirty, but always scored the points. Everyone wanted to be him. Everyone wanted to pick him on their team. He was a brilliant rugby player. And he was the man that dropped that drop goal to win the Rugby World Cup. And I thought, I can tell you this story. I can explain it to you. Or we can just watch it and relive that happy moment from my childhood. And if you're Irish, Scottish or Welsh, I don't apologise because this is a great moment. from the line, backs there Wilkinson will drop for goal there's offside surely against England no Martin Johnson has it he drives, there's 35 seconds to go, this is the one, it's coming back for Johnny Wilkinson, he drops for World Cup glory it's up, it's over he's What a moment that is. Well, I can watch that again and again. I won't because I will offend half the room. But what a moment that is. That high of sinking that drop goal, of getting that adulation of thousands in England, millions. Uh, The England team were greeted by 250,000 people when they turned up at Heathrow Airport, is the estimate. They did a parade through the centre of London with thousands of people turning up. Johnny Wilkinson won the... um, Sports Personality of the Year uh, Award for 2003. They had an audience with the Queen. There's a good picture of Johnny Wilkinson with his arm around the Queen and a corgi at at his feet, which is a little bit weird, but that was a sign of how big he got. He was on Beckham. He got Beckham level for about four months. Johnny Wilkinson reached Beckham level. And I I wanted to illustrate to you how powerful that moment was for Johnny Wilkinson and hear of the, the happiness and the elation that he had when he hit that drop goal. So here's a quote about how good Johnny Wilkinson had it. I had already begun to feel the elation slipping away from me during the lap of honour around the field. I couldn't believe that all the effort was losing its worth so soon. This was something I had fantasised about achieving since I was a child. In my head, I had reached the peak of the mountain, and now all that was left was to slowly descend on the other side. I just achieved my greatest ambition, and I felt empty. Johnny Wilkinson... Hero of England, dropper of that amazing kick we saw there, audience with the Queen, thousands of people turning up to see him in London, felt empty less than 20 minutes after hitting that kick. That, if that doesn't illustrate to you the mountaintop moments of happiness, nothing else will. And our society is haunted by this feeling, this, this hangover that comes with the pursuit of happiness. The, the morning you wake up after you've, you've had that kick and you realise your life will never feel that good, you will never feel that happy again. And this example of searing highs and lows is powerful for me because uh, I've always been a rugby guy as I said Um, a lot of my identity used to be built on being a rugby player being good at rugby I played all throughout school I once got two games off Twickenham so I'm nearly as good as Shawnee Wilkinson not quite nearly uh, in the Daily Mail Cup and um, 
I played rugby when I started university, played at a team here. Um, my housemates used to come and watch me play every week, and I absolutely loved it. I loved that my housemates came to see me play and that I was a rugby guy, and it became this sort of youthful pride and arrogance where you think, I'm the rugby guy, and everyone loves me for being the rugby guy, and I was, I was a Christian on the rugby team, and I felt quite high and mighty of my little halo that I had two pints, and I would talk to them about Jesus every now and then. No one actually ever became a Christian, no one came to church, but I felt good in myself that I was the rugby guy that also loved Jesus. That all changed uh, in, in week nine of my first term at university, so... Uh, nine weeks into the ten-week term that we have at York Uni, um, I played flanker in a rugby game. I'd never played flanker before in my life. I was always uh, inside centre or uh, wing. I-, I was the pretty one that scored the tries. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> played flanker for 20 minutes, and uh, with two minutes left of the game, uh, I remember something kind of falling on me and hearing this weird crunch. A um, lot of pain, but I kept going. I said to the captain, look, I need to come off. I'm in a lot of pain here. He said... We've got no subs. You've got to keep going. I was like, I really can't do this. Um, left this field, went home to my, my, my university halls, spent three hours of in, in pain and agony in my bed, and eventually got convinced to get a, a taxi to hospital. Uh, five hours in A&E later, I'd, I'd broken my fibula, the smaller bone in your leg, and I'd fractured it along like that, jaggedy. Uh, I'd torn all the ligaments in my ankle, and they'd popped out of the joint. Uh, so if you want to properly do your ankle in, that's how you do it. Um, I, I was hoping to show the x-rays today, but you have to pay the NHS £10 to get a copy. So I decided not to do that. <laughs> but for me, that process of, of breaking my ankle, and I still now today can't really play competitive sport. I can't really run on concrete. Um, that's entirely reshaped my identity because I haven't been able to be the rugby guy anymore, the sporty guy anymore. Um, my happiness and my kind of ambition is completely transformed through that. Uh, God had to teach me uh, in those six months at university, it was I was on crutches and everyone else was going out to the nightclub and I was sat at home by myself. Had to teach me the value of peace and the value of deep joy. Not fleeting happiness that comes for, for the mountaintop moment like Johnny Wilkinson, but what deep, deep joy was. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Not talking about the happiness of comfort, the happiness that people pursue for security, but talking about this, the sustained promise of joy. Where happiness is circumstantial, the joy of the Lord is a sustained promise. I think we sometimes struggle to fully differentiate between joy and happiness because for us, happiness is quite silly. Happiness is quite ridiculous. Happiness is pie-facing someone at the front of church. Happiness is Pharrell Williams singing over and over again to clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Um, for me, there's nothing happy about an unfinished construction site, but somehow, <laughs> somehow that caught on for, for six sad months of my life. Um, we... We think of happiness as this silly emotion and we kind of intertwine joy and happiness at, at the same time and struggle to differentiate what they actually mean. Um, and by, by doing this, we kind of end up diminishing the true meaning of joy. We miss the real biblical truth about what joy is. Joy is far more steady, far more strong and far more constant than we realise. It's not fleeting like happiness. It's not silly like happiness can be. There's nothing wrong with happiness, but it's not sustaining or strengthening as joy is. And we need to understand that the joy of the Lord strengthens us uh, because of God, not because of who we are. We're strengthened by the joy of the Lord because God is joyful in us and he takes deep delight in who we are. It's not our actions, it's not our identity, it's not our uh, hitting the drop goal to win the World Cup. It's because of who we are that God takes joy in us and gives us joy. Uh, I've never had the privilege of being a parent, uh, but I know from the reflections of my parents and, and those in this room that have been parents that we're happy when our kids do something kind or loving or thoughtful 
but we are joyful because of their very existence. At the moment you walk out of hospital, uh, you, you kind of have this weird double feeling of fear and, oh my word, what is my life going to look like? And, oh my word, look at this little baby. There's a deep joy that comes just because that child exists, just because that child is in, in, the, in, in the world. And I think that probably uh, sustains parents sometimes when, when your kid is shouting at you, when they're screaming at you. You've got to remember that joy because they actually exist. Um, and that's exactly how God sees us. He is joyful in us because of who, who we are and fills us with the joy through the fruit of his spirit because we exist, because we are who we are. The joy of the Lord is a permanent possession, a state of mind and a gift from God. We can't fake true joy. We can't fake the permanence and the deep-rooted nature of the joy that God gives us. It lasts far longer than any emotion, any, any mountaintop moment. And um, we miss out on the true meaning of joy when we view it for that distorted lens of happiness and Pharrell Williams and pie-facing clowns. Um, we're going to be diving into some brilliant examples from the Bible today that show us the, the power and the truth of, of the joy that God promises us. A joy that strengthens us, that sustains us in hardship and reminds us of our true identity. So the first Bible passage we're going to look at is from the book of Nehemiah, and it should pop up on the screen behind me to, to follow along. And the book of Nehemiah is uh, written in the context of uh, this guy Nehemiah, who's been called by God to rebuild uh, the ancient city of Jerusalem, the holy city of Jerusalem, where uh, the Israelites all came from. And he gathers these Israelites together, and they hear the scripture read out to them in Jerusalem. So I'll read from here. It says, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and teacher of the law, and the Levites, who were all instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. They were weeping because as the scripture was being read out, as the story of their country was being read out, the Israelites were remembering uh, the good, the good deeds that God had done for their country, the good deeds that God had done for them, but simultaneously how bad they'd been, how far they'd gone away from God, how much they'd forsaken him, they'd neglected his, his teachings, his commands, they'd forgotten to tell the stories. So they're weeping and weeping as scripture's being read out. And Nehemiah says to them, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated like this, and their joy was very great. God speaks through Nehemiah and the priests in the midst of this sorrow, this weeping, this, the Israelites looking at their situation right now, it makes their ruined city. They literally stood around in their ruined city looking, thinking, what has happened to us? They're remembering how good God's been and remembering how bad they are. And that God instead speaks through Nehemiah and the priests and tells them to be quiet and to focus on him, to find their strength in the joy of the Lord and not dwell on what they've done and not dwell on their circumstances. He calls them to celebrate. Notice how there's a link between their obedience, following the stillness of the joy of the Lord, and then the celebration. The obedience comes first, then they have the celebration of the joy that we commonly associate with, uh, with, with joy as a big celebration. The second Bible story to look at is uh, the story of Paul in prison uh, in, the, in the New Testament. Paul is imprisoned for basically preaching the gospel and healing people 
in the city of Philippi. And he's imprisoned with, with Silas, and a, a crowd attacks him. It says in the Bible, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrate ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Uh, for those of you who don't know what stocks look like in this context, stocks would have mean that Paul and Silas were stretched out like this. They would have, been, would have been held like that in pain, their whole body being stretched. And even in this deep place of agony and hardship, they were singing hymns, singing praises. Uh, they had the joy of the Lord as their strength that sustained them through hardship and suffering in a, in a really powerful way. Um, to the point that the other prisoners, who are all in pain themselves in, this, in these stocks, just are quiet and listen to them. They listen to the joy that they have. They're, they're amazed with the joy that they have. Um, later on in this story, uh, Paul and Silas are freed from prison as they're worshipping. There's a miracle where the, the gates uh, open up. The jailer panics, wants, wants to kill himself because he's so panicked about all the prisoners escaping. And Paul and Silas eventually get to talk to him, pray with him. And the jailer and his whole family become Christians, invite Paul and Silas back to, back to his house. They throw a banquet, have a celebration and rejoice uh, they've got, they go from imprisoning someone and, and torturing him to j- rejoicing with him. Again, the obedience of Paul and Silas leads to the celebration. In the midst of their hardship and difficulty, they're sustained by the strength of the Lord. An incredible example of what it looks like to hold on to the, the, str- the strength of the Lord. In Luke 10, Jesus tells his disciples uh, when they come and talk to him about... Uh, Sorry, about delivering people from demons. They've gone and they've cast out evil spirits. They've cast out demons. Uh, Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus is basically telling his disciples to chill out and not to be excited about their circumstances, not to look at their mountaintop moments, their happiness, the highs, but instead rejoice in their true identity, take joy in what Jesus has done for them, and take joy in the fact that then they are saved through what he has done, and they are saved through his, um, his future promise. And often our reaction to, to hardships and tough situations, when, when we come across situations, not quite being like imprisoned, like Paul and Silas, uh, but we often question where God is, and we question if he cares. Uh, when these little problems come up, uh, we try and sort them out ourselves. We try and worry our way through our lives. Um, we sort our own problems out and we don't rely on the joy of the Lord. We don't rely on that deep-rooted uh, strength that he gives us. And our own ability, our intellect, our skills and achievements uh, is not a sustaining strength. It's not something that's always going to solve things for us. It's not always going to fix things for us. Um, the challenge that we have in, in learning the lessons of the Bible, the Israelites, of Paul and Silas, the disciples, is to recognize the deep anchoring of joy to recognize when we go on the pursuit of happiness which deceives deceives us into leaning into our own strength and distracts us from that long obedience towards god that is anchored by joy this series is all about long obedience uh, in the right direction towards god last week we heard from holly about repentance about repentance being a promise from god to help us turn back to him Uh, i like to think of joy as the promise that uh, joy is a promise that God will sustain us and strengthen us on that, on that obedience. So we turn back into God and we have, he gives us his joy to sustain us and strengthen us.
Joy's for the long haul. It's for the pilgrims who need protein to strengthen them. It's not the sugar buds of happiness, the, the, the whipped cream in the face. It's not a moment. It's a long thing. It's sometimes not glamorous, but it sustains us and it strengthens us because it is deep and it's a deep delight that God has in us. It's a sense of mind and it's a sense of celebration that comes from obedience. God promises us joy. He places no limit on joy. We can't earn it and the existence of joy in our life doesn't depend on our ability or our striving. But what it does depend on is our obedience and our faith. We have to choose, quite often in hard situations, to accept the gift of joy and to choose to action it in our lives. Joy is challenging for us. There's a number of challenges that comes from from joy. We're challenged by God to not have to feel bad in in every situation or not to kind of get too caught up in our highs uh, because God instead points us to an anchoring joy. We don't let our hardships consume us and we instead trust God. We surrender our strength to him and say that his joy is stronger than our way of doing things, our way of sorting stuff out. Um, God challenges us with, with joy in saying, don't lose ourselves in these peaks of pursuing happiness uh, because we know that the happiness, those manatop moments of winning the Rugby World Cup, those temporary emotions will always fade, but his joy will always sustain us and will always be there for us. But choosing joy is really hard. It is really difficult when the real trials of life come to say, how are we going to react? To say that, God, you really are my joy. You really are my strength. Uh, what will you do the morning after you nail the, the drop goal to win the World Cup? You, the moment you get made redundant? When you smash the first in the assignment that you spent hours on? When your dad drops dead suddenly? When you get a big bonus at work and people shower you with praise? Are you instead focusing on yourself, your situations, your ability or your lack of ability, the happiness of situations or the negativity? Or do you instead choose to, choose to praise God in the midst of it all? Do you instead choose to have the joy of the Lord as an anchor, as something that strengthens you in hardship? Like Paul in prison, joy, joy of the Lord being his strength in hardship. Like Nehemiah, joy is his anchor, joy is his source of look beyond your circumstances and look to me. Joy is really powerful for us, and it has application in hardship and in happiness and in despair. In all these different emotions and all these ranges, The God of all eternity causes us to choose the steadfast and secure constant of joy as our strength, to negotiate the euphoric highs of life and to stomach the searing lows. I'd like to tell you a story as we we finish, and then we're going to go into a time of response and worship. Uh, Tell you a story about a singer called Ella Fitzgerald, who some of you may have heard of. Ella Fitzgerald's one of the most famous jazz singers of the 20th century. she was born out of wedlock, out of her parents weren't married, into the ghetto in Harlem in 1917. Uh, her dad left her at age two, and she never saw him again. And her mum died in a car crash at the age of 15. She was adopted by a stepfather who abused her physically and emotionally. And she was moved to an orphanage 150 miles north of, of New York, where she'd grown up, away from all her friends, away from all her family. Eventually, she ran away, ended up homeless in the streets of Harlem again, and made her living by singing and busking there. She entered an amateur singing contest at age 17, and she won. And from there, she started singing in bars, and eventually got signed by a record label, this orphan, girl from, orphan black girl from Harlem in 1930s America. She got her first number one single at the age of 20, and endured 30, 30 years of success, of awards, of popular adulation, 
and until 1965, where she was dropped by a record label out of nowhere, right at the top of her game, right like Johnny Wilkinson. She just dropped the World Cup drop goal, which she hadn't because she was a jazz singer. But you know what I mean? It's the same emotion of getting to the, the top, and then it goes. You wake up the next morning, where am I? Ella Fitzgerald's res- response to being dropped by her label, to being abandoned at that high, was to release an album of hymns, release an album of songs of praise, giving joy, giving glory to God in the midst of her hardship. Hardship that plagued her for all of her life. From the 1960s onwards, she, she enjoyed renewed success until diabetes led to a double leg amputation above the knee for her. She had congestive heart failure and ongoing illness in the last 10, 15 years of her life. She suffered at the start, at the middle, at the end. It wasn't a happy story for her, but it was a joyful story. In the final hour of her life, on June 15th, 1996, Ella Fitzgerald is said to have gone outside to her backyard, was wheeled out in a wheelchair one last time, and sat for about an hour in peace in the midst of sun, birds tweeting all around her, just looking out. She was wheeled back inside, and she turned and said to her, her family gathered around her, with a soft smile, I am ready to go home now. She'd faced hardship, she'd faced happiness, but all throughout this, she'd had a constant deep peace that came with joy. That is what it looks like to have a sustained promise of joy as our strength. That's what joy and hardship looks like. And that's what it means to know the joy of the Lord.